shaping up in our world today, and especially in, in, um, in Europe, it makes our study of this book, I think, more interesting and necessary. It contains not only uh, light for Gentiles, but Jews and we as Christians alike, uh, as we search the scriptures and find the meaning of those things recorded in this book. Now, we've progressed in our study to the 11th chapter now, and uh, we have the vision for many days. Now, in the last uh, study we looked, uh, based on chapter 10, uh, revealed the visions that Daniel had and, and how he was prepared in mind and heart to receive the truth and information which is recorded in the last two chapters. And if you go back to chapter 10 and verse 14, it says, Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. So that statement is really the theme of the 11th chapter, uh, which we're looking at uh, today. As far as the vision and uh, the text here is concerned, there uh, really probably should not be a break you know, between the chapters. The chapters' breaks are not inspired. Uh, they're put there for... Uh, help in, in finding verses and, and so forth, uh, because the speaker of the chapter, both chapters, is the same, and that was the angel that had come to make these things known to Daniel. Now, in chapter 10 and verse 20 and 21, uh, we find there, it says, Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? Now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I have gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come, but I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your prince. And so, uh, really, the revealing angel said there that, well, he was fulfilling prophecy, and uh, the fulfilling of prophecy confirms uh, what we read there. Uh, and so we're ready to go on in the study considering uh, what was spoken by the revealing angel. By the way, of introduction to this chapter, let me say that the prophecies here recorded covered a period of about 200 years. Uh, the Bible is a book that is interested in secular history only uh, as secular history affects and influences the Jewish people. But the prophecies given in the 11th chapter were given to Daniel and subsequently to all of us to show how the Jews would be affected and how their land would be made uh, desolate through the wars that would come to pass during those 200 years or so. Now, we also notice the latter portion of the chapter is still prophetic uh, as a division of time chapter uh, from uh, in the chapter from verse 36 on to the close of the chapter. Uh, uh, the vision kind of leaps over a great period of time uh, to the very end time of age and gives us a detailed account of the coming willful king of the Ant or Antichrist and of those things that he'll do against the Jews, uh, the Jewish people in their land. And so we also notice here the foreknowledge of God is revealed. And may I say that uh, our study here in the early part of this chapter deals with the 200-year period following uh, the giving of this revelation of divine truth. And uh, the significance of this portion of Scripture is that God was able to foresee and to foreknow 
and foretell these things. Prophecy is often defined as history pre-written. History pre-written. And uh, it's exactly what we have here in this chapter. And if God is able to foretell coming events and bring them to pass, I think that's, again, a proof positive in the inspiration, the divine inspiration of the Scriptures. Uh, Prophecy should serve to encourage us as saints regarding God's faithfulness and the performing of His Word. So with these thoughts in mind, we'll continue on in this uh, chapter here. And in chapter 11, verse 1, the revealing angel is going to say, Also I in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. As we look at history, it's going to reveal three... Oh, excuse me, got ahead of myself there. Uh, the revealing angel showed Daniel that he was active in the past, and uh, he had an influence on past history. Uh, And so, uh, therefore, in a position, having been sent from God to reveal Daniel the things of the present and the future. Now, fasten your seatbelts, because we're going to fly through some prophecy this afternoon, both past and future, and we're going to quickly go verse by verse Uh, But we're not going to spend a long time on each verse. So that's why I say fasten your seatbelt and uh, hang on. Okay, are you ready? Number one, the three kings of Persia. Verse two, and now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, shall he stir up all against the realm of Grecia. Now, as we look at history, it's going to reveal these three kings of Persia, and there are, uh, their names are uh, Hazarius, Artaxerxes, and Darius. Uh, the fourth king was Xerxes, uh, who we know from history was, was very, very, very rich, immensely rich. And uh, so you have these three kings. All right. Secondly, the invasion of Greece was suggested here, uh, took uh, place in 480 B.C., and in the third verse... Uh, We look here and say, A mighty king shall stand up and shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Now, that's not difficult to interpret, uh, for we know the mighty king referred to in this verse was Alexander the Great. Uh, He was the king of the Grecian Empire, represented by the noble horn seen by Daniel on the uh, uh, he-goat in the eighth chapter. You have to go back there to to check that out. Number three, the kingdom was to be divided. Verse four, and when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. Now, we've already learned in previous studies that when Alexander had made his kingdom great, he died at an early age. You remember Alexander the Great only lived to be about 33 years old, I think it was. Uh, He was living a a life of debauchery and licentiousness, and following his death, his kingdom would be divided into four parts and was given to his four leading generals. Now that uh, confirms the text which says here that the kingdom would be divided but would not be given to his posterity. Number four, 
kings of the south and kings of the north. Verse 5. And the king of the south shall be strong and one of the princes, and he shall be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Now, after Alexander's death and the kingdom had been divided into four divisions, only two of these divisions of the kingdom became prominent in history. And those two would be Egypt and Syria. Ptolemy became the ruler of Egypt, and Seleucus became the ruler of Syria. And according to this, uh, the king of Egypt became known as the king of the south, and the king of Syria, division of Alexander's empire, became known as the king of the north. Now, apparently that title was retained by each successive king as a conflict between the two divisions of Alexander's divided kingdom continued. Uh, The expression king of the south and king of the north were so given to the rulers of these kingdoms because of their location uh, uh, from Palestine. So we always need to remember Palestine, uh, which in the Old Testament scriptures was known as the promised land, uh, is the center of the earth geographically. That's where everything comes from, Palestine. And uh, it's also the center of the earth spiritually. Uh, For Jerusalem was the city chosen of God as a place where he would reveal his power and his glory. city of Jerusalem, the land of Palestine, therefore is the central in God's plans and purposes, uh, both for the present and the future. Now that's why it's so important to be thinking of Israel uh, in, in these terms as the center of what's going to happen, even though people want to shove them aside, uh, the Middle East countries want to, uh, to do away with them, but this is what God's plan is. Uh, the king of the south and the king of the north were given to the rulers of Egypt in the south and Syria in the north, and that's really in their relative position to the land of Palestine. Number five, an unsuccessful agreement. With this information uh, in mind, we go on to verse 6. And the end of the years they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand nor his arm. Uh, but she shall be given up, and they shall that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these uh, these times. Now this uh, verse carries us on in secular history to about 250 B.C., and it shows how the effort was made between the ruler of Egypt and the ruler of Syria, namely the king of the south and the king of the north, to make peace with one another. And this alliance between them was affected by the marriage of the daughter of the king of the south, namely the Egyptian princess, uh, to the king of the north. Now, in order to bring about uh, the king of the north agree, uh, then would degree, agree to divorce his wife and marry the Egyptian princess. He also agreed that any child uh, of that Egyptian princess whom he married would become his heir to the kingdom. This, of course, was a wicked scheme, uh, and naturally it ended in failure, because when the king of the south died, the king of the north called back his former wife and the Egyptian princess Uh, whom he had married and her young son, were poisoned. Contrary to this, his promise, the son of the first wife was placed on the throne. And so this fulfilled the prophetic statement in the sixth verse of our text here. 
That brings us to verses 7 and 8, the evil revenged. But out of the branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army, and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against them, and shall prevail, and also shall also carry captives into Egypt, their gods, with their princes, and with their precious vessels of silver and gold, and she, he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So here we have uh, verses that reveal the retaliation that's brought to pass by the king of the south, namely the king of Egypt, upon the king of the north, that is the king of Syria, for the deceit and the wickedness which he had performed. Uh, professing to be on friendly terms, he had married the Egyptian princes, and then she and her son were murdered, after which he took his former wife back and made her son the heir of the throne of Syria. Now, we do not wonder that the king of the south, namely the king of Egypt, was angry, and so he would seek revenge. Now, the brother of the Egyptian princess was slain uh, when he came to power in Egypt, and he avenged her death in the manner subscribed here in our text. He conquered Syria, carried away captives into Egypt, took their idol gods with them, and returned to Egypt with silver and gold and much spoil. Now, Number seven, the struggle continues. In verse nine, it says, And the king of the south shall come to, into his kingdom and shall return into his own land. Verse 10, And his sons shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through, and then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. Now, this verse, these verses suggest the continued strife that goes on with these successive rulers of Syria and Egypt. That's all a matter of history. You remember that, right, from your history lessons. Now, in verse 11, it says this, And the kingdom of South shall be moved with color, and shall come forth and fight with him, even the king of the north, and he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. Uh, here, the words reveal the victory was won by the king of Egypt. Verse 12, And when he had taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up, and he shall cast down many ten thousands, and he shall not be strengthened by it. Here again, the words revealed that the victory which was won by the king of the south, namely Egypt, king of Egypt, was of little worth to him because he did not make good use of it. Uh, it's true because he gave himself up to a licentious life. Verse 13, for the king of the north shall return and shall set a multitude greater than the former and whom certainly come after certain years with a great army and much riches. In other words, having been defeated once by the king of the south, the king of the north was not discouraged, but 14 years later he assembles a great army which was greater one than the one that he had, had been defeated and he came up against Egypt a second time. That brings us to number eight, the wicked Jews sought to help. Verse 14, And in those times there were shall many stand up against the king of the south. Also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. Here we find revealed that the king of Syria, namely the king of the north, came the second time against Egypt. He was helped by some of the wicked Jews of Palestine who thought well, if we help them, that will improve our condition in the land. But in doing so, they found themselves to be in greater trouble than they were. 
So the war then is carried, number nine, to Palestine, verse 15. So the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount and make the most fenced cities, and the arms of the south shall not withstand neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. Here the reference is an invasion of the land of Palestine by the king of the north was aided by the wicked Jews who turned against their own land, their own people. When he says, neither his chosen people, that's talking about the Jews. Verse 16, but he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will, and shall none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land, which by his hand shall be consumed. Here it talks about the words, uh, uh, talks about how the whole land of uh, Palestine was subjected to the king of the north. Number 10, the struggle is prolonged. There's another wicked plot. And drama of, of events next returns to the struggle between Syria and Egypt. In other words, between the king of the north and the king of the south. And in verse 17, it says, He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give them the daughter of women corrupting her. But he shall, she shall not stand on his side, neither be for him. Now, as we see here, the struggle continues, and the king of the north was determined to gain control of Egypt. In order to do this, he espoused his daughter, and I wonder if you know her name. You've probably never heard of her before, Cleopatra. Oh, yes, you've heard of her. Cleopatra, uh, when she was 11 years old, she was espoused to uh, marry Ptolemy of Egypt. Now, he had been very subtle in in purpose in doing this, but he instructed his daughter Cleopatra to spy for him in the Egyptian court. Now, in spite of this, the text says, she shall not stand on his side, neither shall be for him. In other words, when she married Ptolemy of Egypt, she sided with him against the purposes of her own father. And she uh, is called in this passage the daughter of women to denote her great beauty. According to history, she was one of the most beautiful women in appearance, but she didn't have the character or conduct to match. Number 11, a new effort ends in failure. Verse 18, after this, he turned his face unto the isles and shall take many, but a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to to turn upon him. Here the words refer to Antiochus, the king of the north, namely king of Syria, who gathered a great army and made an attack on Asia Minor and upon Greece. But he was defeated by a Roman general. Thus the reproach was lifted off of Rome and placed on Antiochus, the king of the north. Verse 19, Then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but... He shall stumble and fall and not be found. Now, according to history, in his effort to raise the, uh, the indemnity required of him by the Romans, Antiochus, the king of the north, plundered a popular heathen temple to secure its riches. And the worshipers were so enraged that they killed him. And so he stumbled and he fell on the way to his own land according to the scriptures. Number 12, the prophecy again fulfilled. Verse 20, 
Then shall, shall stand up in his estate a, riser, a raiser of taxes in the glory of, his, of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed neither in anger nor in battle. Now, according to history, this was Seleucus Philopater, who reigned with 187 B.C. to 176 B.C. According, concerning him, one writer says he was known to be a raiser of taxes. I won't make any comment concerning tax raising. But he had an evil reputation with the Jews because he was such an exactor upon them. His tax collector poisoned him, and he was slain neither in anger nor in battle. So we see how accurately these prophecies were fulfilled. So I've tried to give you a little bit of what happened in history and how it matches up, even though we don't have all the names here. We find in history that it matches up with what is being said here. And so you come to the 21st verse of this chapter, and we have a prophetic portrait of Antiochus Epiphanes, who's sometimes spoken of as the Antichrist of the Old Testament because of his great wickedness and his hatred of the Jews. And that's where we're going to start the next time we come to this study. So you say, well, you sure went through there fast, didn't you? Did you hang on or did I lose some of you? Uh, well, I might have lost some of you, but uh, that's not my, necessarily my fault. That's probably because you needed some rest or... You had a big meal or something, right? <clears throat> What's the value of something like this? What's the value of a lesson like this? Well, <clears throat> if in our lesson we were able to see not only how God made these things known to Daniel through the words of the angel, but how they've come to pass and were literally fulfilled and how that confirms by sacred and secular history our study of these things should not be in vain. So remember that fulfilled prophecy is the strongest possible argument to prove that the scriptures are divinely inspired and holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And we may rest assured, therefore, that if these things were prophesied and they came to pass and are now a matter of history, the other things which are prophesied in this book and the other books of the Bible concerning the present and the future they too will come to pass and will be just as literally fulfilled. And all the reasoning of unbelief and all the objections of men cannot keep God from fulfilling his word. And therefore, all who believe the word of God shall be encouraged by these things. And all who live in spiritual darkness and walk in sin should be warned by them. And so I think even though we went through this very quickly uh, and some of these things, uh, uh, we can look at history and see how they were fulfilled even through these uh, scriptures. And I realize some of that you're going to have to take my word for it because you don't remember what you studied in history. But uh, this does match up with, with what's actually taken place. So God is in control. Let's pray. Father in heaven,